0: okay
1: Okay, so Jeff that's all we have right now so uh, let's let's get started so okay. uh, th- thank you thank you everyone for coming to today's LAW Los Angeles Las Vegas sections uh, section uh, meeting today on May 27th uh, so uh, we wel- um, w- welcome you all uh, so now let's uh, uh we'll introduce our section chair dr. Jeffrey Cruelle is our uh, section chair and is Away fellow as a chief scientist in Russia. So welcome, Dr. Puchel.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we, uh, we have another wonderful event uh, this evening uh, about the challenges of landing perseverance on Mars uh, by Al Chen from JPL. Uh, roughly a month ago, uh, uh, we had another event uh, with uh, a talk uh, uh, related to perseverance, uh, related to the Uh, It was also an award ceremony really for our section where we honored uh, the teams at JPL uh, with perseverance with the lander and the helicopter, Ingenuity. Uh, They won the LA Las Vegas section uh, technical award of the year. We are very pleased to present it to them as part of a long history of very distinguished winners, uh, including groups at UCLA. Uh, SpaceX, etc. So we're very pleased to recognize them then and to have this follow-on talk to talk about the challenges of the landing of Perseverance. Uh, But before we launch into that, uh, uh, we're going to continue our our recognition series with recognizing uh, our members with exceptionally long uh, uh, memberships in the Institute. And for that, I'm very pleased to introduce Aldo Martinez, our membership chair. So, Aldo, please take it
3: away.
4: Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, as mentioned before, I'm Aldo Martinez Martinez, and I am the section uh, membership chair. And uh, tonight, um, Ken, do you have the slide, or do you want me to pull it up?
1: Oh, do you do you have? If you have, we can show. If not, I can show on my from my end. Okay, I'll show. I'll pull it up from my end. Okay.
0: Right. So.
4: Can everyone see my screen? Yep. All right, uh, so it is my pleasure to um, introduce some of the members who are celebrating their anniversaries. I know as uh, early career uh, folk, I know that I'm really going to be coming into my five years with uh, AIAA, but uh, I I'm, I'm had a pleasure of meeting a lot of uh, members who've had 25, 40, 60, and recently I, I, um, I saw that there's some uh, folks who have 70 years with this organization and they have a lot to teach us, and I am very grateful that they get, they are always open to to um, share their stories, share what AIAA um, has uh, mean, meant to them. And a lot of the experiences they gain, uh, they definitely uh, are what make this organization and aerospace industry as a whole, um, the beauty that it is. And we always are tackling tough goals, uh, such as reaching Mars, um, designing airplanes, or just trying to solve a lot of, um, of the toughest problems that that we can face, right? And um, the members are are what make those um, problems uh, attain of uh, being able to be solved. Mm-hmm. And so it is my pleasure to um, give some time to the members who are present uh, in this um, at this meeting, and uh, those who weren't able to make it, and um, also giving them a little bit of recognition amongst all of the other uh, all of the peers that are present today. Um, um, more more than anything to to thank them for their, for their time and if uh, you guys have if you guys want to come off mute and uh, give a quick um, experience under two minutes of what AIAA has meant to you or maybe the some of something that uh, you've encountered in your tenure with AIWA we will be more than happy to to give you the the floor for a couple of minutes uh, but do be mindful that we do have some. Um, a speaker coming up that uh, I'm quite interested, and a lot of us are quite interested to hear the talk. Uh, So I will uh, keep it uh, moving. uh, But without further ado, for the 25 years, we have Mr. Jason Pugsley. Um, Please, I apologize if I uh, misstate some of um, someone's name. Uh, Feel free to correct me. don't see,
1: Mr. He, Mr. Pussley is not here.
4: Okay. Uh, Gary Rowley.
1: He's not here. Dr. Paul S- Scott. He's not here either. All right, and
4: for the 40 years, we have Miss Marley Wheaton.
1: Uh, Marlee is not here, but we have uh, Mr. dog Ikemi. Uh, his short name is Harlock. Is his also forty years? Do you want him to say a few words?
4: Oh, sure. If if he's more than willing to to share some of experience.
1: Uh, Mister Kemi, please please go ahead, say something.
0: Wow, I wasn't expecting to be on stage, but uh, I guess there's you get a reward for surviving.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know aer- aerospace is an up and down industry, but uh, it's pe- uh it's people like you who really make it worth a while and kind of uh, keep our hopes up and, and, and get us to the other side.
1: <laughs> uh, Mr. Kemi, do you want to say a few words from your experience from Hughes or something? How did you join AWA? something like that?
0: Uh, well, back in my day, it was kind of a given. We were just sort of, you know, from my grad school, we just kind of automatically uh, signed up for ASME and AIAA. And uh, actually, AI, every, every, everyone's good, but AIAA has managed to keep me engaged more, although I still maintain both memberships. And uh, especially these days, grateful for the uh, information feed they get by AIAA.
4: Completely agree. It is a quite of a uh, mouthful sentence when we say AIAA. Uh, but thank you for your service, and uh, we hope to continue to provide uh, that engagement and, and and see you in future events. Um, thank you. All right. For sixty years, we have Dale Hoffman, Dr. William King, Dr. Musan Kwok.
5: Mr. Fred Peitzman.
1: Yeah, Fred is here. Hi, that's
5: right, Hi. Mr. Fred. Hi, it's uh, it's Fred Peitzman. Uh, it, it, Excuse it, me, sorry it, about that. <laughs> well, people either either spell or 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 pronounce German names wrong because they're they spelled crazy. Uh, it's it's uh, it's great to be recognized for 60 years of AIAA. I actually started while I was at Iowa State College uh, in the. IAS, the Institute of Aeronautical Sciences, which, uh, which merged with the uh, American Rocket Society, um, I don't know, sometime around 60 years ago. I don't remember exactly when, when the two, two things merged. But uh, I, I spent my whole career working for Northrop Aircraft, uh, doing wind tunnel testing primarily. So I was there from 1961 through the end of 1994. And uh, uh, since then, I've been uh, very involved with the Western Museum of Flight, uh, the Aerospace Museum located in Torrance. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, Al, uh, we're really happy to have on loan from JPL, uh, a, a really nice 1 scale Voyager model that, uh, that, uh, that we're really happy to have on display. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, Dale Hoffman uh, was also one of the people on the 60 year list I know Dale really well. Uh, he, he also is involved with the Western Museum of Flight. So I see him very frequently. A really, uh, really great guy. Uh, re- retired uh, as a vice president from uh, primarily TRW. I think he worked for a while after it became part of Northrop Grumman. So anyway, I, I have some great recollections of early AIAA one of the first things that I did when we got to California is we got to go on a, on a field trip to the brand new uh, uh, international theme building at LAX. So <laughs> That was a long time ago. And uh, I've written a couple of AIAA papers and so forth. So anyway, thank you very much for recognizing me and uh, look forward to uh, some more good years.
4: Yeah, thank you for your service and um, definitely look forward to seeing you in the future and uh, at least in the museum. I've gone there and can uh, Can express the guy today for, for being able to see some of the aircraft up, up close and talking to a lot of people like yourself. Um, also, we also have Donald Ree- Reeves. Ernest Wade And for the 70 years we have William Burks I believe this was uh, Jerry Alvarum.
1: No, Bill is here. Oh, Bill is here, I'm sorry. Mr. Birx, go ahead. And, and, and Aldo, we have a 50 years, Dr. Roger Wagner. So don't forget about him after after this.
4: All right. Uh, Bill, I'm going to ask you to unmute right now. I think you're muted at the moment.
6: How about now? Uh, we can hear you loud and clear. Okay. I like the previous, like the previous speaker. I started as an AIS member and graduated to the AIAA. But the bulk of my career was with uh, Tier W. I was a uh, mechanical uh, systems engineer and uh, our main mission was developing uh, various types of satellites for a variety of customers. Mm-hmm. And I can't really well talk about much of that, but I retired, I retired in 1992 and uh, went to work for a private individual who had a uh, patent rights to an analytical method for determining fatigue in metals, Um, and we got an Air Force funding to develop that into a commercial product. And I worked for him for the better part of 12 years um, before we closed up shop. But once the recession hit, in uh, the early 19 um, teens, uh, our customers who were State Departments of Transportation just refused to take any new technologies into consideration. So uh, we uh, used what funds we had. and We finally folded the doors of the company about four or five years ago. But um, that's about all, but I've uh, been maintaining my membership in AIAA. I don't go to meetings too often, but I keep in touch with a lot of my former workers at, uh, at TRW, and I met a lot of good, interesting people at my uh, following uh, assignment. Now, in my senior years, uh, my wife and I just take care of each other and enjoy the beach. We live fortunately about five blocks from the Pacific Ocean and right now we're entertaining one of our granddaughters and a friend and later on this evening my son who lives in uh, Iowa and New York is coming to spend the next weekend with us. So anyway, I'm going to conclude now and I will catch the Mars presentation at some later time, I'm gonna join my family, but I appreciate you finding me and giving me the opportunity to uh, speak up a little bit. So I'll I'll sign off. Thank you very much.
7: Bye-bye.
4: Good
6: afternoon. Thank you for your service.
4: Um, And we also have uh, Kenneth Goldman and Herbert Gra- uh, Graham oh,
1: Graham. I'm about it. Oh, I'm very They're not here.
4: Okay. Ken, you, you mentioned someone was...
1: Um, yes, Dr. Roger Wagner is 50 years, uh, membership anniversary, he's with us.
4: Hello, Dr. Ro- Roger. Uh, would you want to uh, share some, some words?
0: Sure. Can everybody hear me? Uh, yes, we can. Excellent. Yeah, I started my career back at the University of Missouri many moons ago and uh, got a mechanical engineering degree then and I was enrolled in the dual major uh, including aerospace. But that, that, that fell by the wayside and so uh, it was just the nature of the beast. Ended up transferring to Purdue and I got my graduate work done there and of course the first job I had was uh, I left it up to my wife at the time to choose East East Coast or West Coast. East Coast was Grumman at the time. West Coast was uh, Hughes and TRW. So she says, I want to go to the West Coast. I said, okay, and I'm going to pick the company. And I went with Hughes Aircraft. Thoroughly enjoyed my time there and uh, met a lot of dynamite people along my career path. And so as Bill Burke stated, there's, there's a lot I can talk about. There's a lot I can't talk about with some of the work that I've been involved with. But I've really gotten a lot of uh, uh, experience and uh, satisfaction out of being in the So uh, I will uh, continue uh, my effort here. And uh, it's a shame to go out on a, a COVID note, but uh, I want to get through this and uh, put a few more years in it before I say, say sayonara. Thank you very much for recognizing me.
4: Thank you, Dr. Wagner, and and as always, we're it's it's our pleasure to to build all these events up, it, and this is why we do it for the members so that they can have some uh, form to express what what they've um, experienced throughout their careers, and also to, to share it and gain some more knowledge. Um, so without uh, further ado, Ken, I'll, I'll hand over the um the presentation over.
1: Oh, uh, thank you, Aldo. That's fantastic. Uh, so so Jeff. Uh, that will be uh, uh, Alan's presentation, so uh, you, you can go ahead.
2: OK. Well, thank thank you, Aldo. Thank you, Ken. I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker for this evening, El Chen from JPL, uh, who's going to talk about the challenges of landing perseverance on Mars. Al uh, is a system engineer at JPL in the Entry, Descent, and Landing Systems and Advanced Technologies group. Uh, He's the ent- uh, entry, descent and landing lead for the Mars 2020 project. Uh, during his 10 years of duty on the Mars Science Lab, uh, he was uh, EDL operation lead, flight dynamics lead, co-led the joint science and engineering Mars atmospheric characterization team, and also a member of the flight system systems engineering team. So he played multiple roles, multidisciplinary roles in this uh, important mission. Uh, He also did the play-by-play commentary for the landing. I actually thought so. I thought I might have even recognized your voice. Uh, He also worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers Project, uh, performing EDL reconstruction and analysis and testing. So without further ado, uh, Al Chen, take away your talk.
8: everybody. Uh, Thanks for uh, inviting me to come chat with you all. Um, and congratulations to those of you who uh, had uh, big round number anniversaries uh, in the IAA. That's pretty awesome. I'm pretty impressed by uh, you guys sticking through this, uh, all of this. Um, so I uh, to uh, talk to you about uh, the challenges of landing on Mars. Let me see if I can overcome the challenges of presenting on Zoom first. So give me a second to get set up here. Uh, hopefully this will work. Oops, wrong presentation. Let's do this one instead. Okay, let me see if I can bring up the different things and make sure I can see you guys. Okay, hopefully you all are seeing uh, seeing my slides. Um, I'm going to talk to you uh, for a little while about uh, the different challenges of uh, landing on Mars and take you through the uh, entry, descent, landing system and how it worked uh, on Mars for us a couple months ago. Um, feel free to uh, yell out questions, I guess, or I guess you can't yell them out, but put them in chat, and uh, I'll try to take a look and see if I can get to them as we go, uh, or we'll catch them at the end. Um, I've got some uh, video in here, so you don't have to hear me dr- uh, drone on for the entire time and some pictures, hopefully, that maybe some of you have seen and some of you haven't. Uh, but uh, hopefully, I'll try to keep a little fun and uh, won't have to uh, just be talking at you the whole time. Um, so first things first, uh, you know, looking at uh, the history of landing on Mars, you know, the human race has had kind of a checkered history um, of success in terms of landing on Mars. I haven't uh, updated this slide, of course, in the, for the events in the last couple of weeks uh, with the Chinese joining us uh, in Utopia Planitia. Uh, but uh, we're now better than a coin flip and um, we're on a pretty good roll. Uh, and the last few, uh, last few landings have gone pretty well with Staparelli being the exception. Um, but in general, the landing on Mars has really been a challenge. Uh, it's been a difficult thing for us to accomplish as a human race. And we haven't really gotten better at it until kind of recently. As you can kind of see, a lot of these orange guys uh, didn't have good fates, but the, uh, but the green ones uh, have made it successfully and some of them are still operating. So let's talk about what's challenging about landing on Mars. Um, first things first, you know, you got to recognize the differences between Mars and Earth in itself. And one of them, of course, is the atmosphere itself. Um, the atmosphere here on Earth is very thick, very useful for us uh, for slowing down. Uh, somebody once told me that Mars has just, uh, just enough atmosphere to be really annoying. That's not quite true. We obviously need the atmosphere to slow down and use it quite a bit to, to land things on Mars. Um, and, but it's got uh, you know too much atmosphere to completely ignore. We want to use it to be able to land. Uh, But it's too little to really do the same kind of things we do here on Earth, you know, like land capsules only using parachutes um, and things like that. Um, In addition to that, it's got significant seasonal variability um, across the the course of the Martian year. The atmosphere uh, can change quite a bit. Uh, You get about 20% uh, difference in density across the course of the year. Um, And then also uh, during parts of the year, you can get global planet encircling dust storms, um, which aren't great either. So the atmosphere is thick enough to support weather, clouds, and winds. Uh, but doesn't really have the same kind of thickness that we have here on Earth to really use it completely stop. And in general, it's relatively poorly characterized. Uh, We don't have a lot of weather stations on Mars, though the number is growing, uh, but nothing like we have here on Earth. Um, So uh, we're principally doing this based on uh, orbiter uh, measurements, remote remote sensing measurements of Mars, um, and then models to try to figure out what's going on. So that's kind of one of the first big challenges. the second big challenge, of course, with Mars is, uh, as far as I know, there are no landing pads or runways that we can use. Um, and then there's this conflict here between what we're trying to do there and where it's safe to land. Typically, we want places that look like runways or parking lots or landing pads, places that are flat, devoid of rocks, don't have slopes, uh, don't have sand on them, you know, things that are, are nice places to land. Uh, but the scientists who uh, you know, are pretty much driving the mission to some degree in terms of our objectives of these missions, want to go to places with lots of rocks and steep slopes you know places where we can access lots of parts of Mars's history easily um, so those those kind of things are in tension with each other uh, the science targets are landing hazards and uh, that's pretty much something we've fought with all the way since the beginning of uh, the beginning of trying to landing on land on Mars um, and as we keep trying to get more and more uh, aggressive with what we're trying to do scientifically there we keep tra- trying to go to harder and harder to places to land where the terrain is really challenging us to find safe places to touch down. Finally, of course, because of those differences between uh, Earth and Mars, uh, testing and proving that uh, the EDL system or entry descent landing systems will work is a big challenge as well. Um, You know, there's always a mantra for us to uh, test as you fly and fly as you test, Uh, but that's really something we can't do here on Earth for a Mars type landing. Uh, The atmosphere is wrong, gravity is wrong, all sorts of things are wrong. So we can't really do a system test certainly couldn't do one affordably, and even if we could, um, wouldn't be very realistic. Um, so in general, what we try to do to, uh, to achieve that verification and validation to prove that our system is going to work is try to use systems that uh, as much as possible are constrained so that they are being, there's something that we can analyze. Um, and then we try to do testing of piece uh, do piecemeal testing of different pieces and build models from that so that we can build models of the aerodynamic performance of the, of the vehicle. Um, we can build models of how the IMUs work or how the radars work, and then assemble them in simulation. So we kind of live in a world where we simulate as you fly and fly as you simulate. Um, so if we stretch back to my MSL days. I figured I'd throw in an, an old video, but a good one, uh, talking about the uh, challenges of landing curiosity on Mars. And I'll link that to why, uh, why that's important to Perseverance in a little bit. Um, but here you go, here's a quick video on that. So this will play okay.
3: When people look at it, uh, it looks crazy. That's a very natural thing. Sometimes when we look at it, it looks crazy. It is the result of reasoned engineering thought. But it still looks crazy. From the top of the atmosphere, down to the surface, it takes us seven minutes. It takes 14 minutes or so for the signal from the spacecraft to make it to Earth. That's how far Mars is away from us. So when we first get word that we've touched the top of the atmosphere, the vehicle has been alive or dead on the surface for at least seven minutes.
9: Entry, descent, and landing, also known as EDL, is referred to as a seven minutes of terror because we've got literally seven minutes to get from the top of the atmosphere to the surface of Mars, going from 13,000 miles an hour to zero in perfect sequence, perfect choreography, perfect timing, and the computer has to do it all by itself with no help from the ground. If any one thing doesn't work just right, it's game over.
3: We slam into the atmosphere and develop so much aerodynamic drag. Our heat shield, it heats up and it glows like the surface of the sun. 1600 degrees. During entry, the vehicle is not only slowing down violently through the atmosphere, but
1: also we are guiding it like an airplane to be able to land in a very narrow, constrained space. This is one of the biggest challenges that we are
9: facing and one that we had never attempted on Mars. Mars is actually really hard to slow down because it has just enough atmosphere that you have to deal with it. Otherwise, it will destroy your spacecraft. On the other hand, it doesn't have enough atmosphere to finish the job. We're still going about 1,000 miles an hour. So at that point, we use a parachute. The parachute is the largest and strongest supersonic parachute that we've ever built to date. It has to be able to withstand 65,000 pounds of force, even though the parachute itself only weighs about 100 pounds. When it opens up that fast, it's a neck snapping nine Gs. At that point, we have to get
2: that heat shield off. It's like a big lens cap blocking our view of the ground to the radar. The radar has to take just the right altitude and velocity measurements at just the right time, or the rest of the landing sequence won't work.
9: This big, huge parachute that we've got, it will only slow us down to about 200 miles an hour. And that's not slow enough to land. So we have no choice, but we've got to cut it off and then come down in rockets. Once we turn those rocket motors on, If we don't do something, we're just going to smack right back into the parachute. So the first thing we do is make this really radical diver. We fly off to the side,
3: diverting away from the parachute, killing our horizontal velocity and our vertical velocity, getting the rover moving straight up and down so it can look at the surface with its radar and see where we're going to land, and we head straight down to the bottom of a crater, right beside a six kilometer high mountain.
9: We can't get those rocket engines too close to the ground because if we were to descend propulsively with our engines all the way to the ground, we would essentially create this massive dust cloud. That dust cloud could then go and land on the rover, it could damage mechanisms and it could damage instruments. So the way we solve that problem is by using the sky crane rover.
3: 20 meters above the surface, we have to lower the rover below us on a tether that's 21 feet long and then gently it on its wheels, on the surface. As the rover touches down and is
1: now on the ground, the descent stage is in a collision course with the rover. We must cut the bridle immediately and fly to the descent stage to a safe distance from the rover.
8: Course, coming up on uh, almost the ninth anniversary of the successful landing of Curiosity. Um, so uh, that's kind of where the, the, the landing of, Mar- of uh, Curiosity is really where the beginning of Mars 2020 began. Uh, because the idea for, for Mars 2020 and the mission uh, was to take that hard work, that 10 years of work we put into uh, into Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory mission, and then try to take the, the that landing system that worked, that crazy landing system that worked that first time, um, and then try to use it again to start the sample return campaign. Um, so the idea of Mars 2020 as a mission, when, it was, when it, uh, we first came up with it about uh, eight years ago or so, um, was basically to try to refly as much of that MSL system, that Mars Science Laboratory system that landed Curiosity as possible. In some cases, even some of the residual hardware uh, we had left over from Curiosity, uh, but to do a new mission, to uh, to land the, the uh, first leg of a sample return mission to bring back samples from Mars. Um, so the idea really was, to leverage all that design and history from MSL uh, to do this whole new mission. I and mean, then try not to change uh, anything that we didn't have to change. Basically, you know, given that all the blood, sweat and tears we'd put into, uh, into curiosity and getting her there safely, let's leverage that again and not have to work too hard on those parts. So that was the idea. Uh, but what is this new mission that we were after? What is the mission that, uh, that Perseverance is doing right now? I'm um, really, it's about understanding the possibilities for past life on Mars. Um, you know, it's got these kind of twin objectives of understanding that ancient, the potential for ancient microbial life. Uh, We know that Mars itself was uh, warm, wet, and habitable about three and a half billion years ago, about the same time that it was, that Earth uh, was warm, wet, and habitable at that time, and when life started to take hold here on Earth. Um, So the idea really with uh, that side of the mission, of the Perseverance mission, is to find samples that might have that evidence of past life and prepare it for return to Earth uh, by caching them in tubes that we can then Uh, take all the way back from Mars back to Earth. A secondary objective, of course, is to prepare for eventual human exploration of Mars. Uh, So we have things like the MOXIE instrument that you might've heard about recently, uh, that is trying to take some of that carbon dioxide atmosphere of Mars and turn it to oxygen, uh, which we've already done successfully. Uh, We're also carrying other things like uh, spacesuit materials to see uh, what happens to them over time on Mars. Again, with the idea of eventually preparing for humans to land on Mars. Um, but with that first kind of astrobiological goal of going to the places where there might be evidence of past life. We wanted to make sure that we can go to the places that both had that past life or might have had that past life in the past and then still preserve for us to find now. Uh, places like Jezero Crater. Uh, Jezero Crater, which is the site that Perseverance is at now, is believed to have once been a lake. Um, you can kind of see it from space and I'll show you some pictures from now. Uh, of, you can see how the uh, inflow channel kind of came into the uh, crater, uh, which then had a lake there and deposited a delta there. Um, and then there's an outflow channel as well. Um, scientists once told me that uh, there's no uh, delta on Earth that you can't find the signs of life in. Uh, so that's kind of what uh, kind of drove the idea of going to Jezero now, uh, that it, there is a delta there now that we can still see, even though all that water is gone and uh, the surface of Mars is dry and desiccated and cold. Um, we can still see that delta that's formed there and hopefully that delta is a good place to preserve those signs of past life. Um, But that in itself provides a challenge for us that we'll talk about a little bit later in that deltas and this crater are not the parking lots and landing strips that we're looking for. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, Mars 2020 entry descent landing system, again borrowing heavily uh, from the Curiosity landing system. The idea and the kind of ethos behind what we're doing was to keep as much of the Mars science laboratory design as possible, but fix things, fix things that didn't work quite right for us on Curiosity, although we landed successfully. uh, We did find some things that didn't quite work right Um, or things that weren't uh, very robust, things that we might've gotten away with uh, last time that we don't want to take our chances with again. Um, We have a much bigger rover here this time. Perseverance itself is about 130 kilos heavier than the 900 kilo uh, Curiosity rover. So we have to land that, uh, that bigger rover as well at more dangerous sites, places like Jezero, uh, but without breaking that heritage architecture that we have from curiosity. And of course, kind of looming over us in the last year or so, of course, was the pandemic itself, uh, where just like we're talking here on Zoom instead of uh, together in person, uh, we ended up having to finish the build of the spacecraft remotely, um, launch it in many cases remotely, and then operate it uh, in a lot of cases from places like my guest bedroom. Um, So uh, that was uh, an additional challenge that we didn't see coming going back to uh, to MSL and taking a look at uh, what went wrong there's nothing like trying to to do something again to realize uh, what didn't go, what what didn't go quite right the first time um, one thing we noticed about the uh, landing of curiosity is that we actually touched down slower than we had intended um, curiosity and perseverance uh, both were intended are intended to touch down at 0.75 meters per second um, and curiosity after our detailed reconstruction actually touched down at about 0.6 uh, meters per second or so so slower than we had intended Um, That actually turned out to be an issue with gravity. Um, You think, you know, you know, gravity pretty well at different places, even like Mars. Uh, But at a place like like uh, Gale Crater, which is this giant crater that's very deep, but has this big mountain in it. uh, We had the local gravity uh, modeled incorrectly for that site. Um, And because we were only using two of our radar radar beams during that sky crane maneuver, um, we were kind of assuming we knew what the gravitational acceleration was. and We were wrong. Um, So then to correct that for Mars 2020, we've created high-fidelity gravitational models for all of our sites that are kind of hyper-local. We're using the uh, terrain and the shape of the terrain and assumptions about the density to produce a terrain-implied gravity model for each of our landing sites that we were choosing between and of course for the Jezero site that we eventually went to. Um, Second on the uh, parachute deployment side of things, uh, one thing we noticed after taking a look at the uh, at all of our navigational data and of course the IMU measurements from the Curiosity uh, landing itself. We noticed that the parachute deployment event, which is quite violent, um, we've got a, a parachute that we're firing out of the back of the vehicle uh, with a mortar, basically a cannon, uh, was causing a bunch of rain um, in our panels and then in the IMU as well, causing a navigational disturbance. Um, this is kind of similar, right? We're getting, getting rates that we were seeing at the uh, at the IMU, um, which uh, led us to uh, think about what happened to Scaparelli to some degree. Uh, scaparelli was lost due to, uh, higher than expected uh, rates detected at the IMU as well um, that caused saturation of the vehicle or saturation of the uh, of inertial measurement units. Um, so to be sure that that didn't happen for us we kind of softened up the parachute uh, train a little bit to reduce the disturbance and also developed a, uh, a way to reduce the resolution of the GNC filters in the IMU uh, so that sap- saturation wouldn't occur. Um, finally um, on another project that uh, was around the low-density supersonic decelerators project that was around to develop additional aero decelerators for Mars, they were developing a large parachute uh, that was going to be hopefully used for future missions, missions even bigger than uh, what uh, became the Perseverance mission. And they were designing that parachute much the same way that we've been designing parachutes and testing them since Pathfinder, since Pathfinder and uh, Mars Exploration Rovers and Phoenix Um this uh, approach, where we had been designing the parachutes and then testing them subsonically, uh, but they went as far as testing them supersonically, um, which led to uh, something that I'll show you here on this next video. Hopefully, this will play too. Shut off my video for bandwidth. So this is over the skies of uh, over the Pacific, out over the uh, Pacific Test Range in Kauai. Uh, what you're first seeing here is actually a, a balut, that's a different kind of decelerator, uh, but it's used to stage uh, this much larger parachute that, again, we designed. In much the same way that we've designed all our parachutes for for Mars uh, since Pathfinder. So there's that blue pulling off the parachute, and there goes that parachute. Let me play that one more time because it's uh, the stuff of my nightmares here. Um, of course, we have to, ter- to, to test parachutes. We have to test them up in the upper atmosphere to get the uh, Mach um, and density about right for Mars. Uh, so these par- these parachute tests tests are occurring uh, upwards of 100,000 feet. Um, above the uh, above the surface and going around Mach 2 or so. So uh, that parachute uh, exploding there and turning into a confetti machine really gave us some pause. Um, given that we'd been testing and designing these parachutes the, the same way, uh, the question uh, kind of came to our mind here. You know, have we been getting lucky? Is this something that we've been edging closer to the edge of this cliff here? And then we finally stepped over it with this parachute. Um, you know, have all these parachutes that have been working on Mars really just been a function of us not having, you know, rolling the dice and coming up um, and winning every time. Um, so to make sure that that wouldn't happen again for uh, for perseverance, we made the difficult choice to actually strengthen our parachute to change the design that had just worked for Curiosity uh, for a system very similar to ours. Uh, and we decided to strengthen it. Uh, we decided to increase the uh, the strength of the broadcloth and strengthen up the lines as well. Uh, but we weren't satisfied with that alone. Uh, we wanted to be sure that we could prove that we could uh, that these would work supersonically. Um, and supersonic testing, really, uh, aside from this low density supersonic decelerators test of parachutes, was not something we'd done for Mars since the Viking era, since the 70s or so. Um, so we had to, of course, also resurrect the ability to do these types of tests and perhaps do them in a different way than we did with the low density supersonic accelerators test. Um, so we actually did that by going to the WAFS flight facility and launching our parachutes on sounding rockets uh, out over the Atlantic Ocean. Um, So as you see in this rocket right right before, I'll show you the video of it launching here. Uh, In that purple test section uh, is a parachute facing off the back, Um, our redesigned parachute. And we're gonna take it up to uh, that 120,000 feet or so and deploy it around Mach 2 uh, to demonstrate that this this new supersonic parachute will survive that violent inflation, that less than a second inflation that we see um, and expect on Mars. So here's a little video of it on the way up. get a sense of how high we are up here in this video of the uh, parachute inflating here. Um, don't blink or you're going to miss the uh, the parachute inflating. As I said, uh, inflations on Mars are about point uh, 0.7 seconds for our 21 and a half meter diameter parachute and here on Earth are even shorter. So So, we were able to redesign our supersonic parachute and then test it supersonically here on Earth. Now you can see the limb of the Earth and get an idea of how high up we are. Uh, in case you wanted to see that in slow motion, I've got a little slow motion video of that too. I think we've got some time. So, oops, too far. Let me uh, hit play on that. There you go with things massively slowed down. You can see the pack coming out there and all the vines being pulled out of the pack here as it uh, is getting out to line stretch out here. You can see these uh, parachute inflations are really violent given how quickly they occur up here in these kind of conditions at uh, supersonic speeds and these rarefied conditions in the upper atmosphere. Um, but this is what we expect and then did see on Mars. You can see out here how we're about to develop Basically, all the load as the parachute begins to inflate. And the ways it inflates, how many lobes that do we develop on the way out there uh, can be pretty chaotic from one inflation to the next. But uh, this is a pretty close-to-picture perfect inflation there. Um, and this, this vehicle saw, or this parachute saw, you know, in the neighborhood of 50,000 pounds of load uh, during this, during this test. So good we uh, made the parachute more, more robust hopefully we stepped away from the uh the cliff of uh what we'd been doing and wouldn't have a bad day with the parachute so let's move on to uh, kind of other challenges here um i can start my video again so you can see me talking from you um 2020 itself is one thing that that happened to you know timing is everything they say right and uh, the 2020 opportunity happened to be a great time to go to mars I told you a little bit about the pressure cycle, right? And the fact that uh, the atmosphere of Mars changes from season to season. Uh, that's principally driven by the orbit of Mars. Mars's orbit is a little bit more eccentric than that of Earth's. Um, so the, uh, as it gets as the planet gets closer to the sun, uh, more of the atmosphere goes from being stuck in the polar ice caps, that carbon dioxide stuck in, the, uh, in those polar caps, and gets released in the atmosphere. Um, and it's much more useful for the atmosphere for folks like me who are trying to land things because once the carbon dioxide molecules are in the atmosphere, we can use them to slow down. Um, Another thing about uh, the 2020 opportunity in particular is it's not quite as close to the sun as you could be. And as a result, uh, we don't get the kind of energetic global encircling dust storms. We're not really in that season. Uh, During this part of the year, the atmosphere is reasonably sick, reasonably thick um, with carbon dioxide molecules in it, uh, but doesn't have the threat of these planet encircling dust storms, which has been great. So that kind of gave us uh, just by launching in this opportunity and landing in February of 2021, uh, more stopping power, more atmospheric uh, molecules to use, um, which basically allowed us to land a bigger rover at base at no cost. We didn't have to do much to design. We just had to arrive at the right season. Uh, whereas Curiosity, the, the MSL mission, actually landed on Mars kind of at the worst time of year when uh, all of those uh, molecules of CO2 were trapped in the polar caps instead of being in the atmosphere for us to use. Um, so just by going in the, in this opportunity, we basically got those 130 kilos of extra rover that we had to deliver for free. So now let's talk about the terrain, uh, specifically a Jezero Crater. Um, if you look on the left here, we have a picture uh, from, of the uh, Jezero Delta, where we were headed, um, from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, there's some false color there to indicate kind of all the different minerals, especially those uh, that, are, that are kind of uh, modified by water, places where we know that there was water uh, based on the chemistry of the, of the minerals we're seeing. Uh, but what you might notice here is that there's really no flat spots. And uh, even the spots that look flat in this picture have lots of rocks on them. Um, in fact, our version of uh, what you see on the left is on the right. Um, this is our hazard map, which is kind of coloring things that uh, are dangerous to land on, um, either because we can't touch down on them safely. There's tons of rocks. So you kind of see those kind of splotches to the east. Um, those are all rock fields. Uh, you can obviously see the edge of the delta. Those are high slope places, things we don't want to land on. Uh, and then there are other things like that crater that's uh, kind of in the, in the middle of the delta and some other places that are places that the rover might actually be able to successfully touch down on but we wouldn't be able to drive out of. Um, so we didn't wanna treat places that we could land on but not do the mission as safe either. So we marked those as death as well. Um, and there's a lot of red here, right? There's not big splotches of area that we can land on um, that are safe. Um, we contrast this to past missions where basically the landing ellipse, the error ellipse where we can come down and touch down had to be basically free of hazards. Um, and here we have hazards all over the place. So how could we land at a place like this? What did we have to do to our system? Um, and in fact. Jezero itself was proposed for uh, for the Mars Science Laboratory mission for Curiosity, but was rejected because of maps like this, uh, because it was too dangerous a place for us to land. Um, so we had to add some tricks to our, to our system here to be able to go to a site like this safely. Uh, the first thing we added was something called Range Trigger. Um, so Range Trigger allows us to deploy that supersonic parachute based on navigated range, as opposed to just navigated velocity. Uh, for Curiosity, um, as it was coming in, when it was slowing down on the capsule, it was deploying its parachute based on hitting a hitting a particular velocity. When you get to that targeted velocity, deploy the parachute and slow down. Um, and in fact, it knew from its uh, navigational filter that it was actually a little bit past where we had wanted to deploy the parachute, but it was dutifully doing what we asked it to, which was deploy based on getting to a safe velocity. Um, but we changed things up a little bit for, uh, for Mars 2020 to be able to shrink our landing ellipse, that space where we can land on the ground where we might end up. Um, by having the, uh, the ability to deploy that parachute based on where the vehicle actually was. Um, so that took our landing ellipse that for curiosity was around 25 by 20 or so to eventually getting down to a, a ellipse that was about seven and a half kilometers by six and a half kilometers by the end, uh, by the time of a, about launch or so. Um, so you kind of see that really shrinks down the uh, especially the major axis of our landing ellipse, allowing us to fit that landing ellipse in tighter spots like that Jezero crater area and target the delta. Uh, where we eventually touched, uh, where we eventually touched down. The second and most probably even more important piece of the puzzle um, was terrain-relative navigation. Here you see kind of the timeline from uh, Curiosity of our touchdown, uh, from uh, heat shield separation at about eight kilometers to priming the uh, the engines that we used to slow down at about three kilometers, to doing that backshell separation that was talked about during the video at two kilometers, and then doing that powered flight down to the sky crane. Um, so without wanting to change kind of what was happening on the vehicle because we wanted to live within the Curiosity architecture, we needed to add a system here, this terrain relative navigation system without disturbing that. Um, So the first thing we wanted to do was add something we call the lander vision system. Um, So after that heat shield comes off uh, with terrain relative navigation, we were taking pictures of the ground and using those pictures to match them up with an onboard map from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. I don't know if people do this anymore, but uh, you know it's kind of like looking out the window of your car while you're driving around and then holding your map there um, and trying to figure out what you see out the window and match that up with your map and thereby figure out where you are. Um, that's what we were asking the vehicle to do too. Um, so really what that lander vision system did while on parachute during a time when things were relatively quiescent on the vehicle um, and we were just descending and waiting for back shell separation, we took those pictures, matched them up with an onboard map and figured out where we were. And then we could use that information once we separate from the back shell to smartly fly the, uh, the spacecraft with a safe target selection um, divert so instead of just diverting to avoid the back shell, we, avoid, we we diverted to avoid the back shell slow down and head for the nearest safe site. Um, so what that allows us to do really is to target tiny little parking lots that are scattered around the landing site, instead of having the whole place be one giant flat place. Um, So that really gives us the ability to allow some of those hazards that you saw in the hazard map earlier to actually be at our landing site, because with the knowledge that we have the ability to fly to safe spots that are in between those hazards. Um, So that kind of opened up the world for us to sites like Jezero, where there are hazards throughout the site, but there are enough safe spots nearby to allow us to touch down. Okay, I think a little video, hopefully this will play okay, um, about uh, terrain relative navigation.
10: We are in Death Valley, testing terrain-relative navigation, the new technology for Mars 2020. The terrain in Death Valley is very much like Mars. It has a lot of sand dunes and steep slopes. It's quite similar to the landing site that Mars 2020 will be going to. We're taking a copy of the system that will be on the spacecraft and we're testing it in the way that it would be used during the flight mission. Terrain relative navigation gives the vehicle
8: the ability to figure out where it is. This is kind of along the same lines of what the Apollo astronauts did uh, with people in the loop uh, back in the day. Those guys uh, were looking out the window and uh, looking for different craters and other features on the moon that they knew of from the maps we had in the moon. So that way they could figure out where they are and figure out where they needed to land to, to be safe. So for the first time here on Mars, we, we're, we're automating that.
10: What terrain relative navigation gives you is the ability to avoid hazards that you already know about. So large hazards, hills, craters, things that you've seen before. With the camera, we take images as we're descending and we match pieces of the image to orbital imagery that we have stored on board. And if we make many of these matches, we're able to figure out where we are relative to the map.
7: If we didn't have terrain relative navigation, the probability of landing safely at Jezero Crater is about 80 to 85%. But with Mars 2020, we can actually bring that probability of success of landing safely at Jezero Crater all the way up to 99% safe every single time.
8: We don't have an astronaut that we can put on board Mars 2020, uh, but we can put this uh, this system, this terrain relative navigation system, so that the the spacecraft could figure it out on its own.
10: I could see it being used on lunar missions, science missions, as well as human missions, future Mars missions of course, Mars sample return, Europa lander, landing on a comet um, pretty much everywhere you want to land, you're going to want to have terrain relative navigation.
11: Okay, so
8: with the addition of uh, rain trigger and terrain relative navigation, we felt comfortable going to a site like Jezero. Um, so, so we ended up with a uh, uh, an entry set in the landing timeline that kind of looked like this. Um, we've got that seven minutes of terror again here going from the uh, top of the atmosphere to the bottom. Uh, but now with the uh, the introduction of rain trigger deploying that parachute smartly at the right place. And of course, terrain relative navigation happening um, when after heat shield separation and once we have a radar lock on the ground um, shortly before backshell separation and then using that information uh, to fly to a safe spot nearby. And that's what happened uh, on February 18th. So let me show that, uh, that video to you as well.
1: Propulsion. Go. EDL phase lead. Go.
7: We have deemed Perseverance ready to execute entry, descent, and landing on her own. Confirmation of entry interface. Perseverance is currently going 5.3 kilometers per second, about 120 kilometers from the surface of Mars. It will start controlling its Path to the landing target. The parachute has deployed, and we are seeing significant deceleration. Oh the heat shield has been separated. Perseverance now has radar lock on the ground. The backshell has separated. Sky maneuver has started. About 20 meters off the surface.
6: Tango Delta, nominal.
12: Touchdown
7: confirmed. Perseverance, faithfully on the surface of Mars. Ready to begin seeking the sands of past life.
8: mentioned, but you might have seen uh, as part of that video, uh, some of our video from the uh, new entry, descent, landing camera system uh, that we had on there as well. Uh, so for the first time, we got to see a parachute inflate uh, on Mars, um, and got to see some other things like the uh, descent stage, uh, lowering down the rover, and of course, the uh, rover being lowered from the descent stage. Um, that picture was in the front page of, uh, of my presentation here. Um, so. Of course, that's how things went uh, in February, but how did it go from a technical perspective? Well, we're still working on the uh, reconstruction of the full trajectory and everything that happened uh, during landing, but we have a pretty good idea right now how things went. Um, In general, things went pretty much as we expected. Uh, If you take a look at this this figure here, this timeline, I've updated it with uh, things that are in green are things that went pretty much as we expected within uh, one sigma of of, uh, our prediction. Uh, things in yellow are uh, one to two sigma, and the things in red, just the one thing, uh, were a bit of surprise. Um, in general, things went uh, pretty well. Uh, we had the timeline almost almost perfect. Uh, we ended up with uh, six minutes and 59 seconds from entry to touchdown. Uh, so one less second of terror than we expected. Uh, in general, the uh, altitudes of things were a little bit higher than we expected, those are the two yellows that you kind of see with parachute deploy and heat shield separation, uh, mostly because the atmosphere was a little bit different than we expected, not necessarily surprising, but uh, since it's hard to really predict the weather on a uh, on a different planet at a given time and a given place, um, but uh, still pretty close to what we had intended. Uh, the only real surprise really was that the uh, entry deceleration was a little bit lower uh, than we expected. Again, we're still figuring out what's going on there, but we think it's related to the upper atmosphere being thicker than we expected. Um, so let's talk about uh, where we ended up on the ground. Um, so uh, if we take a look at how that uh, range trigger performed in terms of deploying the parachute and when where we ended up um, at backshell separation, we ended up at about one sigma or so uh, from the center of our kind of landing ellipse where we had targeted um, so again well within expectation and uh, only about a kilometer from uh from where we had targeted uh, the whole uh, the whole system to go to um so things were went pretty well there now uh, let's talk about train relative navigation um the train relative navigation system itself worked very well um it took us down to uh to a place that uh turns out to be very safe um and the uh, lander vision system the part that helped us figure out where we were uh, locked up pretty much immediately um it went to the um, It got a solution pretty much as soon as it could, as early as it could uh, based on the images um, and uh, found us a nice safe spot. Um, If you take a look at this, uh, hopefully you can see my pointer here, this uh, video up here on the top right. Let me walk you through what we're seeing here. Uh, The top right picture uh, or the images that you'll see there are actually the images from the Lander Vision System camera. Um, It's a little bit dark. Uh, That's actually sort of uh, basically intentional because it's easier to underexpose pictures and then pull, pull information out of it than to have things blown out and saturated and try to figure out what you're seeing in there. Um, So that's uh, what the camera itself was seeing on the way down. Um, This picture down here is kind of the full 30 kilometer by 30 kilometer map. Um, I told you there's an onboard map that we're matching up the pictures that we're taking to that map. Um, And then this uh, blue area is kind of the cropped map. It's the part of the map that we believe that we're in. And that's what you see over here, blown up. Uh, The red area is the field of view of the lander vision system camera. And then the, the green squares that you'll see and the multicolored squares that you see are the landmark matches, the kind of things that the lander vision system has identified and matched up with what's on the map. So I'll play that and you'll kind of see all the images that are taken uh, from the time that the lander vision system is initialized um, all the way through backshell separation and then past that actually. We went ahead and left it on uh, during powered flight just to see how it would do at lower altitudes, even though we were no longer using that information. So, here you can see that it jumps right away to having lots of uh, identifying lots of landmarks. It goes from that coarse mode to a fine mode uh, that really gives us the higher precision that we want to have later on. Uh, We can see as we down there that uh, we have plenty of landmarks. We pretty much uh, saturated our system with how many landmarks uh, it could find. So, it did a real good job identifying uh, what it saw in the picture versus uh, what we saw in real life. In the end, we ended up touching down. Only about five meters from the site that was targeted by the safe target selection system. Um, so that tells us that the whole system performed very well, that the accuracy of the lander vision system was very good, and our ability to fly to and target the target and fly to a site using the, uh, the engines during powered flight was also very good. Um, and it turns out this was pretty important to us. Um, if we had done a divert much more, much more like Curiosity had done with the Mars Science Laboratory mission, Uh, we would have ended up diverting to a site that would have been about, uh, to a landing spot that would have been about 20% hazardous. So 20% chance of uh, death at touchdown. Um, So we, uh, it was very important that we chose to use the terrain relative aviation system here to fly Jezero, or we would have had a pretty bad day um, if we tried it without it. You can kind of see here where we landed uh, in the pictures down here uh, at the place we've deemed Butler landing, uh, that it's a nice little safe oasis there, a blue oasis amongst hazards all around it. Uh, so this turned out to be a uh, a great place to land. Okay. Uh, so let's move on. So let's talk a little bit about uh, why we landed, where we landed. Um, so you saw that the target of the ellipses uh, was kind of closer to the um, to the edge of the Delta, to the edge of that cliff. We really wanted to land as close to the, the Delta as possible. Um, but it seems uh, likely again, due to that atmosphere probably being a little thicker than we expected, causing the parachute deploy ops to be, to be a bit high, plus some combination of not getting the winds quite right. At this site again, trying to predict the weather at a place that uh, we've never been to. Uh, the backshell separation point was about a kilometer long uh, of the of the landing ellipse. Um, then, in, in addition to that, the safe target selection system works by kind of considering the two different, a couple different areas where it could land and picking the safest one. Um, the places that it was choosing between are kind of shown in this bottom right picture. Uh, in the upper wedge, we had this black spot, which was closer to the uh, to the original target of the full landing ellipse. Uh, but we actually chose this white square on the bottom right because it was a bit safer. It was about uh, 1.3% chance of uh, touchdown hazard versus 1.9% chance of, uh, of a touchdown problem. Um, so we diverted to that safer spot. Um, so that was about an additional 600 meters or so away from the center of the landing ellipse. So that kind of took us a little bit further away from you know what we would have called the bullseye, but still not too far away, only 1.7 kilometers long uh, of the center of the ellipse. Um, so let's take a look at uh, how we did, you know, in terms of the simulate as you fly and fly as you simulate, um, using some of those uh, those videos that we took from those entry, descent, and landing camera systems. Um, so here, uh, what we have is a view of the rover from the uh, descent stage looking down on it on the left. So that's the actual flight video. And then on the right, our Adam's simulation of what was happening there, uh, where we buried kind of the uh, the mechanical behavior of the vehicle, as well as the guidance navigation control uh, aspects. So the flight software is also mimicked uh, in that sky crane simulation. I can try to play that again real quick. Maybe I'll play again so you kind of get an idea of how well we modeled that. Or maybe I'll try to play it. Oops, there we go. I don't know about you, but this looked at, this turned out to look pretty good to us uh, that uh, what we actually got to see in real life, which was kind of not mind bending to finally see what it looks like to land on Mars pretty much matched up uh, with what we had from our simulations. Uh, We also did the reverse, um, tried to take a look from the rover looking up at the descent stage, uh, both in the flight camera video and then with our simulation as well. So hopefully this will play. There you go. Not quite perfect, but pretty much got the behavior pretty close to right, I think. There it is. Um, as you, I think, if those of you who've been following the mission know, uh, we've deployed our uh, our little friend there, the uh, Ingenuity helicopter, which just completed its uh, fairly eventful sixth flight, um, not that long ago. Uh, but here's a picture uh, from the ground there, of course, of uh, right after deployment of the rover taking a selfie there with uh, Ingenuity sitting right next to it. Um, so I'll, just to close out things, uh, you might have seen the, uh, the pattern on the parachute being a little bit different than the one we tested. Uh, those of you... Uh, who are following along know that uh in binary on that parachute we left ourselves a little message and a message for the world kind of uh you know our own little uh unofficial model at J- a motto at jpl um with dare mighty things written there uh in the parachute and then uh with the latitude and longitude of the jet propulsion laboratory as well but of course uh, dare mighty things uh references the uh, speech by theodore roosevelt um who's uh I put the quote right here but I feel like it's a good reminder for us to uh, never be afraid to uh, to take chances right to uh, to understand uh, both failure and success so we really understand what failure feels like uh, when we have it and that we're uh, not afraid to really stick our necks out there and uh, take chances for the chance to have a have a great victory so uh, that's about it I guess this is uh, when I could take questions Uh, let me see stop sharing so I can figure out how to find the Q&A
1: box Oh, uh, so Al, it's uh, time for Q and A. Okay, uh, Jeff, do you want to say something?
2: Uh, I want to thank Al for his excellent talk. Uh, I enjoyed the videos, especially the ones I hadn't seen before. There were a few, so uh, that was that was wonderful. Congratulations again on on the success of this mission. Uh, go ahead, Ken. Let's let's have some questions and answers.
1: Okay. Uh, so, okay. So thank So, uh, Mr. Uh, I-, I think Patrick has a question. Let me see, Patrick. Patrick, go ahead. Mr. Classic.
7: There's a lot of mute. There's a lot of mute buttons. Sorry. Just got them all turned <laughs> off. <laughs> so my name is Patrick Clancy and I just started my space career in 2012, uh, diverse background, but watching the seven minutes of terror descent live feed for NASA JPL was what helped me as the catalyst to embrace my new professional phase being in space. And I've been thrilled and excited for it uh, ever since. So diving deeper and deeper all the time. I wanna thank Al Chen also for this presentation. Uh, my question is relative to Can you describe the process at arriving uh, or for arriving at the terrain relative navigation system solution? In other words, uh, was it the availability of new technology? Uh, Was it working a creative solution to drive technology? It seems like a real dynamic balancing of risk reduction in parallel with enhanced mission parameters, more precise landing zone. So what does JPL use as an approach, generalized solution methodology, problem solving methodology to come up with a, a solution like that uh, terrain relative navigation? I mean, it's it's phenomenal what it does. How did you work through getting there? How does JPL do that? What is the team's process?
8: That's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the, uh, the key thing for me really is that this isn't something that we just kind of came up with uh, and then decided to fly. Right, this is a, a technology that's been in development for like 20 years uh, for us. Some of the folks that uh, that put terrain relative navigation or helped us put it on uh, Mars 2020, I've been working on it for a lot of their careers. Um, and in fact, the uh, the Dimes the descent uh, image motion estimation system on MER is kind of like a grandfather in some sense of uh, what we eventually flew on uh, Perseverance. Um, the ability to identify landmarks on the ground and to use them uh, to track them from image to image. Um, uh, is a piece of this that uh, that is 20 years old, um, if not a little bit more than that, if you wanna go back into the research aspects of it. Um, so it, it was key for us to have a technology development program going along the sides. Even while we were doing um, Curiosity, uh, we were working on this technology that we would need, that we would know we, we would eventually need. And then it was ready for us uh, to infuse uh, for Mars 2020. Um, so we got it there uh, to, to the right level of maturity. That was about the right point after Curiosity landed to finally take a chance on adding this kind of new uh, groundbreaking capability for us to go to these types of sites.
7: Thank you, I appreciate that. It's a 20 year process is what I take away and keep doing development, right? Looking 20 years into the future. What's the next thing JPL is working on that will happen in 20 years? Love to hear about that some other day.
8: All right. It's like there's a couple of questions
1: in the Q&A that I could take, I guess. Uh, Alan, is that to Mr. Yeah. hello. Oh, hello. Hi, uh, my name's Alan as well. They like your name. <laughs> uh, yeah, so
12: how does the hazard percentage on the map get determined? I guess it's determined yeah. primarily on flatness, or I assume, you know, there's also some human input as to, you know, where not to land, right?
8: Yeah, excellent question. That's a that's a great uh, thing to, uh, to bring up, because I think that's kind of one of the key features of the way we flew terrain wealth and navigation um, is that we didn't ask the vehicle to determine what a hazard was on the fly. Right. We figured it out on the ground. Um, right. So we made the job a lot easier. Right. We don't have to have the, the vehicle have to think through um, what it sees and then identify hazards. We mapped we gave it a hazard map and a place of, uh, and a list of places to go. So how do we do that? Right. There are a lot of different things that are hazards to the vehicle. Um, Primarily, you know, the the rocks, of course, is a big one, identifying rocks that are big enough that we can't land on them. There are certain there are certain rocks, of course, that we have enough ground clearance to land on. um, And those aren't hazards. Uh, But we wanted to be sure that we could see or identify all the rocks that are possible. Um, But uh, even with that, there's challenges. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter can't quite see all the rocks that uh, that are hazardous to the rover. So we kind of had to, in addition to the ones we could see, we had to model additional rocks that were smaller than the ones we could see. Um, So that's kind of on the rocks end of things. Uh, Slopes themselves are sometimes problematic, although the vehicle is very good at dealing with slopes for the most part, because uh, we're using that mobility system, which is designed to drive around and deal with Mars terrain. Um, As a touchdown, as a landing gear, um, still things that are too too steep, like the edges of that delta, which are basically cliff walls, uh, are no good to land on either. Um, so we created digital elevation maps using, uh, again, images from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to help us create a slope map of the entire landing ellipse um, where we could come down. So we could identify which places were too slopey, right, too steep to touch down. Um, finally, uh, there, you know, I, I talked about the fact that there are some craters there that are filled in with, uh, with things. And there's also these uh, sandy areas with lots of colligital ripple fields um, or other things that are difficult for the rover to drive on. Uh, we wanted to mark those as hazards as well because we didn't want to touch down at a place where the rover wouldn't be able to accomplish the mission. Um, if you touch down successfully but can't drive away, that's still a failure. Um, so we marked those as well on our hazard map that we gave to the vehicle uh, to fly to the safe spots. So slopes, rocks, um, and bad places to drive are pretty much the uh, the major hazards that we were trying to avoid. Very cool,
12: thanks. How big is the, I guess the hard drive where SD? drive on, <laughs> on the Uh
8: Depends which one you're talking about, right? The uh, Ironically, the EDL camera system uh, carries, uh, we ended up with a new, com- a new c- computer to, uh, to do the lander vision system uh, part of this, the train belt well navigation. But uh, all of that is dwarfed ironically by the commercial off-the-shelf um, EDL camera system and uh, all the data we collected there. So uh, there's not much in terms of what's on, what's on the computer in terms of the, uh, the main thing flying EDL um, it's uh, surprisingly dwarfed by uh, by this off the shelf camera system that we have on there.
12: <laughs> Pretty cool. Thanks.
1: Okay, next is uh, Aaron. Uh, Aaron, do you want to speak out? Uh, Aaron, I think you you posed a question. Do you want to speak out your question? You raised hand as well.
8: Can Aaron talk? He might. Is he still in the attendance list? Or?
11: Hello. Am I unmuted? Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, yes. This is uh, this is Jacob. Actually, this is my wife's Zoom account. Um, but uh, my my question um, is during uh, I watched one of the one of the Perseverance live streams for for EDL and and during that that live stream I remember hearing some of the you know the comms chatter right after touchdown uh, referencing uh, Monte Carlo sets either you know being started or being aborted or, or that type of thing and I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about the types of Monte Carlos that were being run. You know, right during the EDL, and then immediately during and after touchdown, it seems like kind of an odd time to be running that sort of analysis.
8: Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, as we're getting closer to Mars, uh, our uncertainty in where we are prior to hitting the top of the atmosphere is shrinking very quickly, um, and that uh, that solution can move a bit. It's kind of like you, uh, as you follow into the gravity well of Mars, you get the idea of really where you ended up. Um, so that was very perceptive of you. We were we were running Monte Carlos throughout EDL um, because we were get, grabbing the last kind of known. Uh, position based on radiometric navigation um, as we got closer to Mars uh, to kind of recalibrate where we thought we might come down and what the performance of the vehicle might be like. Um, so you're right. You were hearing us uh, talking about Monte Carlo runs. They're all based on the latest navigation uh, solutions that we were still getting from interplanetary nav.
11: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's very interesting. I, I imagine that you must have a great automated process for, um, Reducing that data and presenting it and making it actionable as it's being run. Uh, having done some Monte Carlos myself, it, that's that's a difficult part of the process.
8: Yeah, I mean it's too late to do anything about it, of course, but at least it gives you an idea of what to expect, um, and uh, you know in case there are any surprises there. Thank you.
1: Okay, next is uh, Mr. Robert Baker. Uh, Bob, speak up. Uh,
4: did you have to use? Is any machine learning in uh, the process that you
1: use
8: that's a great question so uh, we did use some machine learning actually, uh, to help us try to identify uh, both uh, additional rocks that we couldn't see um, and to try to smartly identify certain types of terrain that might be problematic um, so we did use some machine learning on the uh, terrain identification side of things not of course on board the vehicle but in terms of uh, characterizing the hazards here on the ground
4: did it help
8: yeah, I think so. I mean, it certainly made the job a little bit easier, I and mean, then we could cross-check it with uh, with human checking to some degree. Um, but uh, you know, there's still a lot of terrain to look at, even with a, a much smaller landing ellipse than in the past.
1: Okay. Uh, the next question is from uh, Guido. Uh, Guido, do you want to speak out? Guido is our uh, member who, uh, whom I mentioned He has uh, over 70 years of AIAW membership. It's amazing. Wow. So, Guido.
5: Yeah, uh, the Chinese have announced that they've placed uh, spacecraft on Mars. How much do we know about their spacecraft and, uh, and what sim- uh, similarities and dissimilarities do they have and, and the, the, the level of technology?
8: I don't personally know much about it. I mean, I've seen some things that have been written about it and that leverages pretty heavily what they did for the moon which has been quite impressive. Um, you know, I, I know that the rover itself is about a third the size of, a uh, third the weight. Um, it's kind of big because of solar rays, but about a third of the weight of, uh, of Perseverance or so. It's in that neighborhood between a third and a half. Um, and they went to uh, Utopia Planitia, which of course is a nice flat place um, to land, a good place to, to, to head uh, if you want to be free of um, a lot of hazards, which is great. But I don't know too much personally about it. Oh, uh,
1: okay. Uh, so next, from Randall. Uh, so Randall, do you want to speak out your questions or you? Uh, basically, has a question: How many prints per second are processed by the TRN system?
8: Great question. We uh, process one sec one image per second. We don't need to do it too fast uh, because all we need is uh, to know where we are, and then we use that information. We can propagate that uh, with the rest of the uh, navigation filter, really. Uh, to to figure out where we are and then decide where to go. Uh,
1: the next question is from Mr. Holger Iceberg.
6: Holger, go ahead. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I was wondering if the Sky Crane was uh, really test flown on Earth, or was all physical data really only based on Viking Lander experiments?
8: Yeah, so that's a good question. As a system, the uh, Sky Crane really can't really be tested very easily on Earth given that everything's kind of wrong, especially gravity. Um, so we've tested things in pieces, right? We've tested the engines themselves um, and characterized their performance so that we could model them and uh, assemble it in simulation. Uh, same thing with uh, the deployment of things like the, uh, the the mobility and the deployment of the rover below a structure. So we got a good idea of how the bridal, umbilical, and DRL, those kind of wires that connect to the descent stage, and the rover together and how that works. Um, But you can't really do a full system test of it here on Earth.
1: Okay so if that's uh, the next question is uh, from Mike. Uh, Mike go ahead.
12: Yeah hi Al. Um, I really enjoyed your presentation and I'm glad to be able to speak to you. Um, I was able to I was able to join a um, AIWA viewing party during the um, during the landing. Actually, <clears throat> I was um, on with AIAA section with Ken, so we it was nice. Um, the question is, um, what happens to the flyaway after it flies away from the vehicle? Is that does it have any purpose after that? Good
8: question. So the descent stage uh, flew away uh, to the Northwest um, about 600 meters and crashed into the ground. Um, I can even actually, I don't know if I have it handy, but I can show you uh, pictures of what happened to it too. If you uh, give me a couple of minutes, I can dig one up. Um, but uh, the vehicle actually managed to take a picture of uh, what happened to the, uh, to, um, to the descent stage. And we can actually see from space as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, let me see if I can find the right pictures and can still share them. Um, Give me one second here. Again, I still have to figure out Zoom.
0: <laughs> that screen.
12: So it crashes, but does it have any, so it just crashes? Yep, that's right. Um, so let's see, here's a picture that was taken shortly
8: after landing. Hopefully you're seeing that um, with the portion of the image contrast stretched here. Um, this is looking back toward the Delta and you can kind of see this white cloud here that's what's left of the descent stage um, at, at, at impact with the ground. So we don't try to use it again. Uh, we just try to get it out of there. Uh, we can actually see, do I have that picture of what happened to the descent stage from space from Mars or Constance or a little later. Uh, there's the uh, splatter of the, of the descent stage uh, on the surface of Mars. Oh. So, yes.
11: so-
12: I know the purpose is to get it out of the way, but is so I guess, so, so it, so it just, it's controlled just to get away. It doesn't have any, you don't like try to, you don't like guide it to explode anywhere or just, right? It's
8: Attempting to fly uh, a attitude profile to get it to about the distance that we send it to. Um, we send it either forward or backward or from the rover, depending on which way to, Excuse me. The rover azimuth was it touchdown. Here's a picture, kind of the zoomed out version from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, High Rise uh, Imager, showing where everything went. Uh, so here's Perseverance down here. Uh, the heat shield ended up downrange. Uh, the descent stage ended up to the northwest,
12: as did the parachute and backshell. Okay. Um, also, I'm kind of I'm also kind of curious. Um, I, I know the person asked right before you about the um, the the China lander. Um, I guess what comes to mind when I hear that, I know that, um, I know that JPL has a lot of precautions, um, making sure that the lander's clean because they don't want to, they don't want to contaminate Mars. So with another, with another, so what's coming to my mind with another lander up there from China, do we, do we... Do we have any say? It do, like, can they contaminate Mars? I guess that's what I'm thinking. Like, do we have any? We have no. Um...
8: I mean, I don't know if if China is party to the international agreements um, regarding planetary protection. I don't have particular knowledge of that. Um, that being said, right, they're pretty far from the parts of Mars that we're on. Um, although Mars is quite a bit of a smaller planet, right? It has, given no oceans, basically the same amount of landmass as Earth. Um, so. Uh, there's still a lot of a lot of Mars to explore for us all.
12: Okay,
1: well, thank you so much. Um, that's all I have to say. Okay, uh, next question. Oh, okay, Jake, uh, Mr. Pinheiro, I think you have another question. Go ahead.
11: Uh, yes, thank you. Um, during your presentation, you showed a couple of images from the TRN system with the correct and incorrect landmark identifications kind of denoted on those images. And mm-hmm. uh, you may have, have gone over this during the talk and I just missed it, but were those, you know, identification of those being correct or incorrect, was that done after the fact or was that done by the system uh, as it was navigating?
8: Uh, it was done by the system as it was navigating. Um, so those, uh, you saw a couple of different colors that weren't green, um, reds were incorrect landmark matches, but the, uh, the other guys uh, that you saw in there were actually ones, we had so many landmark matches that after a hundred, start throwing them out.
11: Um, So we just throw out the lower quality ones. Okay, so the system itself, it it identifies uh, something as a landmark match, but then it can further identify whether it was correct about that or not, basically? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, thank you.
1: Okay, uh, there's a question from Pankaj. Pankaj, speak out.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, my question is, uh, would the geopolitics be at play on Mars? or in other words, would, would, would the zerong and the Perseverance? Is there any plan for, uh, for, to communicate with Zirong?
8: Uh, we're nowhere near each other um, with uh, the Chinese rover and Perseverance are nowhere near each other. So I don't think that's really in the cards, um, so.
1: Okay, thank you. Okay, next, Byron. Uh Miss Lowry?
8: Um, well, I think I see I mean, his question. Q and A. He, he okay, asked, uh, "Will you be looking to reduce, further reduce the landing ellipse in, on future missions? How much accuracy would be beneficial in retrieval missions for the future?" So this is a great question and actually very, uh, very astute because we are looking to go further, right? If uh, with the terrain altitude navigation system with the lander vision system, we accurately identified where we were uh, to pretty good accuracy. The only thing that uh, that prevented us from uh, flying to a specific point on Mars, as opposed to just flying to something a safe spot nearby, was the amount of fuel that we had. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we actually flew the uh, the dynamic test model descent stage that was that was built for MSL for for Curiosity. Uh, we dusted that off and then turned it into a flight uh, into a flight vehicle. Um, so we were constrained to the amount of fuel that the descent stage could fly—about um, 400 kilos of of hydrazine or so. So the only thing preventing us from doing what we call pinpoint landing or flying to a particular place on Mars with uh, an accuracy of, you know, in the end, uh, on the order of tens of meters is the amount of fuel uh, that we put on board. Um, So we are looking to do that for the next mission, for the sample retrieval mission, lander mission, uh, that'll go and pick up those samples and put them in Mars orbit. Um, To reduce the amount of time that we spend on the ground and to get those samples back faster, um, we are looking at putting more fuel on board so that we can fly right to where we want to land, as opposed to just landing somewhere nearby uh, where we happen to do bachelor separation. So good question.
1: Okay, quick. Next question is from uh, Mr. Seed, Jasper Seed. Uh, Mr. Seed, do you want to speak out? Well, I think he typed his question in the QA.
8: Yeah, I can read it here. Um, he said, Thank what would your advice be for someone starting their aerospace career and keen to work as an ideal engineer? competency skills required, specialist versus generalist. Um, this is kind of a mealy, mealy mouth question, but the answer is it really takes people, all sorts of people to do this. I mean, the the fun thing about entry descent and landing is that you end up using all parts of the spacecraft and touching everything. So we need people who do everything, right? Whether it's a uh, propulsion or uh, or mechanisms or flight software or avionics or radars or IMU, whatever kind of navigation control, you name it, we use it um, during entry descent and landing. So. There are many different ways to be a part of the solution, whether it's in those areas or being uh, more of a generalist or a systems engineer, uh, trying to work all that. And of course you don't even have to really be technical. I mean, we need uh, procurement people and, and business folks and uh, all sorts of other folks to, be, to make sure that uh, that we can get to do this. So um, it really takes all types. Uh, so there are many different ways to come at that.
1: Yeah, you see he post another question about Skycrane.
0: Yeah.
8: Okay. So the sky crane is inspiring and now proven uh, to be an effective solution to the Mars EDL mission. What challenges could drive the team to think of the next solution? I mean, beyond the sky crane. Good question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the big things that we're taking advantage of uh, using the sky crane is the fact that we're delivering a a large rover, um, a a rover that already has a mobility system designed to interact with the surface of Mars. Um, So if you don't have that, the sky crane becomes a little less attractive. Um, and I think we might see that uh, going forward, right? If the sample retrieval lander, which I don't think is going to be a big rover, is more likely to be a lander itself, uh, may go away from a sky crane system because it doesn't already have that kind of built-in landing gear uh, from having a big, high clearance rover available to it to to use as a touchdown system.
1: Okay, I think there is another question from anonymous attendee. Uh, can you uh, see it? Can you see it? Yeah.
8: Uh, yes. How was the EDL data sent back to Earth? Um, was it sent real time or stored and then dumped to go to a relay first? Yeah, good question. So um, we there's a couple of different ways to get uh, the EDL data back. Um, to make sure that we get some amount of data back, uh, especially to be able to reconstruct a fault if something were to happen during entry, descent, landing. Um, we have two ways of getting things back kind of in real time or near real time. Um, one is direct to Earth um, with uh, X-band tones. So kind of we have these T- a tone system where we can essentially play a uh, one, uh, like a 256 key keyboard, um, where we can play a tone for about 10 seconds and then play a next tone for another 10 seconds or so. Uh, so you can think of that as a really low rate uh, way to get data back. Um, but that expand, uh, that expand system is pretty good at getting things um, all the way to, you know, from Earth, just at a very slow rate uh, from Mars to Earth. Uh, the downside being for a place like Jezero at the time we happen to land, that uh, Earth set slightly before touchdown, um, so at the at the Jezero Crater site. So we couldn't actually maintain that uh, X-band tone communication all the way through touchdown. Um, second, the rover is sending out an eight kilobit stream of telemetry to whoever's listening. Um, in this case, uh, orbiters flying overhead, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and MAVEN. We actually modified the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to be able to relay that, uh, that stream, of that eight kilobit stream of uh, of of telemetry to earth in near real time. Um, So that's what you were seeing us taking a look, a lot of look at with the combination of those tones plus that eight kilobit stream uh, during landing day. And of course, after a successful landing, we have the ability to play back all the high rate recorded telemetry that the vehicle has after touchdown. Um, So we've gotten most of that data back by relay as well from ground passes um, as the rover has been doing other things too, we've been sending back EDL data um, and getting all our high rate IMU and all those pictures Uh,
1: post-landing. I think uh, Patrick, Mr. Krensek has uh, something to say. Patrick, go ahead.
7: Can you you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So what about the Phillies logo on your home screen? I love that. I'm from the Northeast and my wife's a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan. Sorry they beat the Dodgers occasionally. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm from the Philadelphia
8: area originally too. (laughs)
7: <laughs> the only comment if you're referring to is the don't forget the safety and mission assurance people oh yes. talk about the needed personnel i know you think about them every day
8: i do actually uh you know sat, sat close to them and you know uh you know all sorts of all sorts of uh, interaction with safety and mission assurance folks so uh it's been uh yeah they're they're a big part of the mission success as well
7: yeah, again, thank you for a super presentation today. This kind of, even personal remotely, it's a, a huge thing. I'm a new member to AIAA, and this is a huge resource and your time tonight's much appreciated. Thanks.
1: All right, folks, uh, if no more question, I think that uh, that's, uh, thank uh, Mr. Al chain for this uh, wonderful presentation, it's truly amazing. And this is really the month for, for uh, perseverance. Uh, so really amazing, highly appreciate. Uh, so uh, Jeff, do you want to say something to conclude?
2: Well, thanks to everybody and especially you, Ken, for organizing yet another fantastic event.
1: Oh, great pleasure. That's, I'm so excited. You know, there's a, what Al is doing, you know, has been, it's been, it's really amazing. And he has been uh, appearing on multiple JPL videos. I've been following those so you can see the real person. That's really amazing. So uh, really, <laughs> pretty- <laughs> it's a great app, <laughs> And he gave. Uh, he he was in the in the event when you were chair in 2013. Uh, so it was really amazing. He came came back. This is your yes. home. This is your home. Come back. <laughs> I do recall meeting him before, and it's good to see him again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, well We we'll open arm. This is your 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 family. Your home. So uh, welcome. Anything you need, uh, uh, to us awesome. anytime. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, folks. You know, it's a great evening. This is truly amazing. So uh, uh, really appreciate you with us uh, this evening. So uh, uh, we'll also post some article next month about this uh, membership anniversary. So please stay tuned. And uh, we we'll are also try to post uh, this some uh, short uh, a few words, uh, uh, screenshots for our presentation. And if anybody uh, is uh, willing to volunteer for writing an article for this event that would be wonderful. Uh, please contact us. Yeah. Once again, thank you so much. Uh, welcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you for, for joining us and I look forward to seeing you next time. A good night uh, and a good weekend. Have a good, good day. You took care.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank
3: you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.